Hi, this is Pastor Wilson. Thank you so much for joining our podcast, Renew Church OC, where we pre- present different sermon series that I hope will enrich your life. The next six weeks, we'll be going through our series, Unstuck, where we go through six stages of spiritual development and how we can progress from one stage to another while appreciating each stage that we're in. I hope it helps you on your spiritual journey as you get a landscape of where God is taking you now and where He's taking you in the years to come. God bless. Great to see everyone today. Um, again, we'd love for you to sign up for retreat. Oh, the youth are headed out to the green room. So if you're a junior high or high school, you're welcome to follow them out. And we have a, spe- a sp- service by Irwin for you. And then you'll come back and join us for worship. So I'm really excited about our all-church retreat. It's great to see so many families sign up. If you're a college or young adult, I just want you to know there's nothing better that's happening June 30th to July 2nd, okay? You don't have to keep all your options open. Just commit to it. The Lord wants to speak to you. What's better than that? So we'd love for you to register for the retreat. We're finishing up our series, Unstuck, and talking about the six stages of spiritual development. We're closing this out, so I'm doing one sermon, and then Ken and Chrissy will be closing it out next Sunday. So I want to end where we started, talking about some of my goals for stage theory, for why we're going through these six stages of spiritual development. So the first one is because we want you to be able to name the stage that you're in and better live it out. There's invitations of Jesus in each stage that will help you grow as a Christian. And we hope that as you are able to recognize and name the stage, you're able to receive those invitations from Jesus and also avoid being stuck at your stage. And thirdly, we're hoping that you would be able to appreciate and meet other people in their stages as well. That there can be easily uh, some of us who struggle with judgment. But sometimes we're judging someone else just because really they're in a different stage than we are. They're not thriving or, or invited into the same things that we're invited to. And so as we understand stage theory, we're able to extend grace instead of judgment and, and envy. And lastly, we want to normalize deconstruction. So deconstruction has been around since centuries. Like um, John Cassian talked about it in 1500s. We have uh, people speaking about the interior castle in the third century. This book was written in the 90s. So as we think about deconstruction, it feels novel in our society and Christian culture, but it's always been there and has always been this marker in someone's spiritual journey. And so I'm hoping that as we talk about it, even a little bit more today, when you hit it, it won't blindside you. It won't be novel. You'll be inoculated to this idea of deconstruction or the dark night of the soul or in here, uh, the inward journey. And it will be something you embrace as helping you grow in your faith as opposed to something that shatters uh, your faith. So our big question today is, what stage are you in? Are you in the beginning of the stage, middle, or end? And do you feel stuck? So I'm going to do an overview of the six stages again. You guys will break off, answer this question, and I'll take another 15 to 20 minutes in our anchoring passage from Mary and Martha. Okay? So here are the six stages. Uh, if you can read this, read this you have amazing vision uh, on the next slide. Yeah. Who can read this? 
Okay, I'll just tell it to you. So the first stage is a recognition of God. This is you becoming a Christian, and all of a sudden, you're, you're woke. You see God everywhere. You see his purpose over your life, that he's real. He made the clouds and the sunset that you're staring at, and there's this feeling of awe. There's this feeling of, of, of wanting to um, awaken more to his reality. Here, you need to be comforted, and nurtured, you need to know that your salvation is real and, and protected in you becoming a Christian. But it's easy to get, get stuck at stage one by feeling worthless, that God is so big and, and therefore he's also distant from me. He doesn't actually care about my life going into an agnostic view or feeling lost in the Christian faith in ignorance, not knowing how to navigate it, how to grow, how to learn more, having um, and feeling lost that way. You move to stage two through support and mentorship for, from, into finding a, a community to belong to. And in stage two, that's, that's really um, defined by learning. You're learning more about the Bible, about theology. There's a sense of belonging and security in the community. You're feeling comfortable praying for the people around you. And you're picking up tools in, and resources to grow your faith. But sometimes people get stuck in stage two. I think about this in every category of theology. But the Reformed guys, even though I'm, I love Reformed theology, sometimes you have niches of them that you're talking to them like they have it all figured out. They're a little bit judgy. And if you don't agree with them, then you're wrong, right? If you're familiar with Reformed theology. And I'm saying I'm not Reformed. I'm just saying that some people in that category can get really uh, closed and comfortable and rigid in their theological system and end up judging people by how much they know. But growing out of that, you start to understand your spiritual gifts and how you uniquely contribute to the kingdom of God, whether it's serving in the church or whether it's in society at your workplace and your families. You start to see how he's uniquely made you in order to gift to the people around you. And so in stage three, um, there's, you start taking responsibility in the church, you start doing things, and your needs are to be equipped and trained in order to grow in your gifts. Serving in my sweet spot is a great way to summarize the productive life. But some of the ways of being stuck in stage three is being overly zealous, self-centered. Your spiritual life can become performance-oriented. You can equate your spiritual life to the title you have at church. Because I'm a small group leader, I'm a good Christian. Because I'm an elder, I'm a good Christian. Because I have, I'm serving on the worship team, I'm a good Christian. Instead of being able to delineate the two. And then um, there can be a little bit of image management as well, spiritually. Not letting people see your brokenness or the shadow side of who you are. And just wanting to present yourself as a good Christian. You come out, you don't really work your way out of this the way you do from stage one to three. The wall finds you, and you get hit, and all of a sudden, the things that used to work in your faith, in your faith does not. And I would say it, it feels like you're starting to deconstruct. I have a few quotes. The next slide, it says, at this stage, we face an abrupt change. So going from certainty in your faith to uncertainty, going from... Um, Feeling comfortable in your faith to uncomfortable, to almost the opposite mode. It's a mode of questioning, exploring, falling apart, doubting, dancing around the real issues, sinking in uncertainty, and indulging in self-centeredness. We often look helpless to those around us. That's from the book we've been going through, The Critical Journey. Next slide. 
if we have been people of strong faith, our faith, though not necessarily easy, has fit nicely into our faith framework. Then the event or crisis often takes us on major proportions. It often strikes close to our core. For example, our children, losing a child, our spouse, maybe divorce, work or health, being diagnosed with cancer. For the first time, our faith does not seem to work. We feel remote, immobilized, unsuccessful, hurt, ashamed, or irrehensible. Reprehensible. Oh, man, I got it. (laughs) Neither our faith nor God provides what we need to soothe us, heal us, answer our prayers, fulfill our wishes, change our circumstance, or solve our problems. Our formula of faith, whatever that may have been, does not work anymore. Or so it appears. We are stumped, hurting, angry, betrayed, abandoned, unheard, and unloved. Many simply want to give up. Their life of faith may even seem to have been a fraud or worse, or at worst, a mirage at best. Next slide. So in this stage, um, we can become paralyzed, immobile. There's feeling of guilt and shame. Um, We can feel stuck because we're we're starting to turn inward and, and only look at ourselves. But the wall and the stage four, even though it feels like deconstruction or it can go that route, it's actually an opportunity for us to look inside of us and take apart our faith. So it's not defined by what we do anymore. It's not defined by what we know anymore. It's not defined by the title we take on. It's simply us sitting with Jesus. And in that moment, we're able to start asking, hey, am I doing this because I want to belong? Or am I doing this because I love Jesus? Am I doing this because I want the applause? Or am I doing this because I want to serve him? And so all of those questions start to break apart. And we go inward. And we find healing. And we find Christ alone. So in stage three, service is the best way you grow as a believer. But stage four, serving and over-functioning often prevents you from inward healing. And from having greater self-awareness. And, but it's scary to go there. People don't respect stage four. So churches often celebrate stage three and condemn people in stage four. And so I've seen people walk into stage four, hit the wall, and then they go back to stage three. And they overfunction. They cling on to their titles. You know, they're, they're doing more instead of less. And so they're avoiding um, really getting deep into their wound. I remember one time I went longboarding around UCI and I got this huge gash, right? It was, it was really nasty. And I didn't know how to bandage it up, but I went to Rite Aid trying to save money. You know, I stick on this huge um, gauze. What's it? Good job, everyone. You, you won. That was a game and you won. Um, and then I wrapped it up. And I just, kept, I just kept going with my life. And then it would get, like, really soggy, and it would drip things of different colors, right? I'm like, maybe, maybe I should stop using lifting weights and start going to a doctor. And I go into the UCI Medical Center. They open it up. It smells terrible. And then she takes this, like, sponge with spikes on it, and she just starts scrubbing it down. 
and getting all the gunk and the asphalt and the little chips of rock out of my arm. And it feels so painful, right? I'm like half crying. And she's like, oh, you're tough enough to longboard and eat it, but you're not tough enough for the sponge. So she had great bedside manners is what I'm trying to say. Great bedside manners. But after that, it healed clean. And when we're headed into stage four, it feels like we're taking a huge step back. We're not lifting weights anymore. We're not just functioning as normal. We're opening up our hearts and our souls and our motivations and our wounds. And it's a painful process. And sometimes we're just in the hospital for a while. And we're not working anymore. And we feel useless. And the things that we used to ride our spiritual life on, it's, it's, it feels immobile. But it's out of this space of sitting with Jesus and being healed by him and allowing all the other parts of religion to shed that we come out of it into stage five and six. Stage, we learn, what we're learning to do in stage four, we're actually just doing the same thing and maturing into the rest of five and six, allowing Jesus to define us. All right, so I'm going to go into the question of the day. What stage are you in, uh, beginning, middle, or end, and do you feel stuck? We're going to spend five minutes uh, turning to the people around us. We really cherish this time of sharing our stories, hearing the stories of others, and being able to participate in the the service that we're in instead of just being observers. So five minutes. Make sure everyone around you is included. I'll come back, and we'll look at Mary and Martha. Thanks for sharing. How many of you guys, again, no, no stage is better or worse than the other. It's just where we're at. You know, I love, I love Lila, Levi, and Liam. They're just in different stages. So how many of you guys would say you're in stage one? Raise your hand. Stage one? Just became a Christian, kind of exploring the faith. Okay. How about stage two? Defined by learning, growing. Okay, good, fun. How about stage three? Okay, we need volunteers for children's ministry. Please head upstairs after service. We need like 50 volunteers, okay? Uh, how about stage four? Anyone stage four? Hitting, hitting the wall? Okay, uh, we still need volunteers. Just kidding. <laughs> stage five? Yeah, maybe? Okay, stage six? I know, that's hard to say, right? Can you be humble and raise your hand? I don't know. So we have a home stage. Most people can't make a home in stage five or six unless uh, they're maybe 50s. A lot of people in their 50s get to five or six. Um, And so a lot of our 20s and 30s are defined by the first couple stages. But we can experience many of those stages in different parts of our life. Actually, in different parts and categories of life, we can be in different stages outside of our home stage. I was thinking about um, how women often hit a wall in pregnancy. And it's almost like a mandatory wall. And so they hit that wall, and because of the toll it takes on a person's body going through birth, pregnancy, and nursing, they are often more mature and able to move into stage five um, versus guys who just kind of feel like everything's going up throughout their career. So just like women are more mature from 7 to 8, 9 to 10, you know, they're also more mature often in their faith as well because of these, um, that moment of, of childbirth, of pregnancy, of nursing a baby, that the body changes, 
the, the core of your life shifts, and you're giving things up. It's a lot of sacrifice. And so just being able, just, um, it's just a different thing. All right, we're going to look at Mary and Martha as our case study. Uh, Martha always looks bad in this passage, which I feel bad about. You know, she probably shouldn't be um, put into a category in, in her whole, like, life in this one moment. But we're going to do that to her anyways. And Martha's, of course, the good guy. Okay, here we go. So Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her house to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She said to him and asked, she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but a few thing, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So first we see that Martha is opening up her house. And in the Jewish culture, hospitality is a really big deal. Um, who you host and how you host speaks immensely about your family. Your family is honored, your home is honored when you bring in an honored guest. So many times when there's a traveling rabbi, rabbi many people will want to host them because it's a way of gaining stature in the community. So Martha has Jesus coming over. They're close friends to him. It's probably a place of rest and shelter for Jesus. It's not primarily ministry there. And so he's in her home, and there's just so much pressure for her to host Jesus because of his stature. So she's running around the house trying to get it set, probably cooking food, making sure every pillow's in the right place. And then she's looking at Mary just sitting there, right? What the heck? She's just sitting there. She's doing nothing. She's pretty much useless. And she starts getting really frustrated. And then we, we start looking at the internal life of Martha. It says first that she's distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. This idea of being distracted in the original language is being dragged around. It's like you're at the end of everyone else's strings of expectation, of, of what they want, of their task list. You're not operating out of your own uh, inspiration or your own desires. You're just getting things done. And that's how Martha felt. She was being pulled around by all of these different expectations of her. But it wasn't just what she was distracted by. It was who she was distracted from. That all of these things pulling at her attention took her eyes off of sitting with Jesus. And secondly, we see her judge not only Mary, who wasn't doing anything to help her, but she was actually judging Jesus. She says, Lord, don't you care? She's saying that God doesn't care about the state she's in, about how frantic she feels, about the burden she's carrying. And I think when we're over-functioning, when we're kind of at the last part of the doing stage, where we feel burnt out and we point up and we look at Jesus and we say, don't you care that I'm tired? Don't you care that I'm overworked? Don't you care that I'm feeling used? And Jesus at that stage, at that part of the stage, almost becomes like a slave master in our eyes. That all he wants is for us to do more. But instead, he's inviting us to sit with him. <clears throat> and of course, she's judging Mary as well. That she's not fulfilling her obligations. She's not helping 
Martha, she's not preparing the home the way she's supposed to. And then Jesus describes her as being worried and upset about many things. The idea of worry is that all these external things are consuming your mind. I think when we worry, we don't feel like we have control and focus anymore. That our mind is now being dragged around by all the possible scenarios that can happen. And then she's also upset. She's, she's, she's not serving out of joy. She's not serving because she loves Jesus. She's serving bitter. She's serving angry. She's serving outside of this place of peace. And I know I've been in ministry or as a father or as a worker upset that I'm doing things not because I want to do them anymore, but because I have to. I'm not doing things out of serving people. I'm doing it out of obligation. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm getting more and more bitter because I'm lifting things that other people aren't lifting. <clears throat> Martha feels upset. So when you look at um, Martha in the next slide, we see distracted, um, judgmental, worried, upset, and possibly fatigued. Then we see how Mary carries herself. Notice that she's silent. She doesn't defend herself. Notice that she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's doing the one thing that Jesus is requiring of all of us. So two slides later, if you can. We, again, very unfair and probably not a great treatment of God's word, but we're going to suggest that Martha is stuck in stage three, maybe entering stage four. And Mary is um, an example of someone in stage five. It's hard to superimpose her into, into, them, into these stages. We don't know them well enough, but these are the expression of these two stages. So not only is she sitting at Jesus' feet, which we'll come back to, what I see in Mary and what we see in people who are in stage five is a radical acceptance of self and others. Mary knew who she was. And she didn't succumb to the expectations of her society. She didn't just walk into her gender role of preparing the house or preparing the food. She didn't let the awkwardness of the disciples as they're moving uh, to create space for Mary to sit down deter her. She didn't let Martha's like angry gazes, like her dagger, you know, get over here, or like behind Jesus, like get over here. She didn't make. She didn't make, let those things like determine who she was or what she was to do. She knew who she was. There was this deep sense of security in that I'm just looking at Jesus and I'm just going to operate out of his approval and his love for me. And in that moment, it was sitting with all these guy, men disciples, listening to the Lord. There's that deep sense of anchored security when we're in stage five. That what people think of us and their expectations have very little bearing on who we are and what we do. We know our limits. We know what we're able to give. We're no, we know what we can't give. And, and we know our weaknesses. Uh, someone at stage five has a deep acceptance of their story, of the ups and downs of their life, of their mistakes. There's an acceptance of, of um, their limitations, their sins. And there's just no more hiding because they accepted those things. Because the Lord's accepted those things. There's not a need to impress the people around them. There's not a need to have people see them a certain way. Mary has this radical acceptance of who she is. 
And she has an acceptance of others, too. It's okay that Martha's mad at her. Like, she doesn't have to stand up and defend herself. She doesn't have to have other people see her a specific way. She can just stay put and feel comfortable in front of the Lord. Man, those are things that I long for. Those are things that I want in my spiritual life. That sense of security at Jesus' feet is all about what he says and thinks of me. It's all about his eyes. And the eyes of others, the voice of others, fade in the background. There's a radical acceptance of her circumstance. Man, we're probably not going to be able to keep clean this house. You know, let's give up here and sit with Jesus. Um, and then she's working out of rest. When I look at Jesus, uh, we see the way that he moves into ministry as well. In this next slide, Jesus answers in John chapter 5, truly, Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So, of course, Jesus is like beyond our ability to categorize the spiritual journey but we see him display these aspects of of what it means to be in stage five that first there's a deep security in his sonship with the lord he starts there and he ends there i am the son of god my identity is that i'm his child my identity is sitting before the lord and being in love with him sitting before the lord and hearing his voice cultivating that space and all throughout Jesus' ministry we see him withdraw from the crowd we see him walk away from ministry opportunities we see his disciples wandering around trying to find him because he's in the wilderness being with god that is what anchors him and then secondly he says i i do only what i see my father doing that jesus doesn't operate out of his own strength or or, or motivation. He's not trying to satisfy the people around him. Herod asked for miracles, and he didn't give any, right? Um, the Pharisees asked for him to rebut the, the, the high priest, and he doesn't give one. Uh, Pontius Pilate asked for him to push back on these accusations, and he, sit, and he sits still because there's this deep anchoring of who he is in God, and no one else is able to touch his identity. And he doesn't need to defend himself. We, we see people asking him to stay. We see people telling him, spend more days in this town. And he still walks away. He says, I have a mission to fulfill. I'm supposed to preach the gospel to all the towns. So the, the cheers of crowd and their approval does not keep Jesus. He does not entrust his heart into the hands of men. And then people's death threats doesn't deter him either. There's this anchored, steady walking towards the purpose of the Lord. And that's where he's going. And then there's this admission that I cannot do, I can only do what my father's, what I see my father doing, and the son can do nothing by himself. That at stage five, we're less agenda-driven, we're less goal-oriented, we keep our plans in pencil, instead of pen, because we want to follow where the Spirit leads us. And we have this very strong view of, of our limitations and the power of God in our life. So I remember um, 
when I started preaching, I, I was, um, I just loved it. And, and, and no one knew better. Like, I, I started leading a uh, junior high and high school service in my second year of college, and it grew to 80 kids. Unfortunately, Ben was there having to listen to all these, like, beginner sermons. But I thought it was super good. Everyone loved it, you know. And, and, um, and I was always validated for my preaching, even from, even from college. I was flown to different states to guest preach. And um, I, did, I did homeless ministry. I remember being upstairs playing with the kids and tutoring. And then the coordinator would call me because their, their preacher bailed. And so I'm literally opening up the Bible, going down the elevator, trying to prepare a sermon for like 300 home people who are without shelter. And I would preach to them. And it was great. I love preaching. It was that gift that, that I served the Lord with in stage three. And then a few years into Renew, there was this deep sense of insecurity in preaching. People were critical about it. And even just the grind of having to get up Sunday after Sunday. I ran out of stories. I ran out of inspiration. I would get on stage, and I, I described it as when I took a step off of the stage, I felt like I was dropping into this abyss. And I didn't know when I would land. I don't know if you ever felt depression hang on to you like that. But I would just keep dropping. I'd become a little sad. I'd become emotionally depleted. I'd become fixated at something I said that I wish I didn't, something I didn't say that I wish I did. And then I would land somewhere in, man, should I be doing this? Over 24 hours, just not being able to talk my way out. But then knowing in six more days, I would have to preach another sermon. You know, there were a few things God told me during that time. One of them was like, you don't need to build, don't dig a ditch to build a mountain. I think I tried to preach off of this mountain top on Sunday, and it was artificial. An artificial, like, standing with the Lord. An artificial climax in my emotions. An artificial, like, place in my spirituality that I really wasn't. So I was kind of borrowing from the future. If you think about it, in terms of neuropsychology, I was doing this huge, like, serotonin and dopamine dump in my, on the stage, and then I would just crash for the next 24 hours after, afterward. And God's like, just walk on stage on even ground. I love you the way you are right now. I'm going to use you in, in the authentic place you're in. So just walk on stage like you're walking into... Um, a coffee shop. Walk on stage like you're walking into the volleyball court. You don't need to perform. I can just use you in your current struggles, in your current spiritual space, in your current emotional space. Just walk on stage and share my word. That was the first gift of God. The second gift of God was uh, Pastor Dave. And last week he shared about how he felt kicked out and homeless and how he felt like you know, he was hoping for some resolution, like going to a mega church and being the teaching pastor, or the pastor inviting him in over a meal and, and weeping in sorrow, right? But instead, he just got six months of therapy. And I said, Dave, why didn't you close out that sermon with finding renew? You know? Why, why wasn't that the end of your message? How you found renew, and we loved you, and you get to use your gifts? No? I'll do it for you next week. So 
um, I asked Dave for permission. So uh, in the space of wandering, I remember sitting down with him. We were looking for a family pastor. And I said, hey, Dave, will you join my team? I have very little money and lots of jokes, right? So that's, that's what I have to offer you. Um, and he said he doesn't mind joining Renew. You know, we weren't established. We had like six families he would be looking after. Um, but he said, Wilson, are you okay sharing the stage with a really strong preacher? And he said, I've been to churches where people have kicked me out um, and undercut me because the lead pastor was insecure about my gifting in preaching, and I had to leave. Or I was sandbagging my sermons because I didn't want someone else to be jealous. And I said, Dave, I'm really tired. Like, I'm just tired. I, I can't feel envy when I'm this tired, right? <laughs> so he came in, and he, he's a really gifted preacher. My mom said that he's her favorite preacher now. <laughs> Mom, I'm your child. <laughs> That's how good a preacher Dave is. Um, and I think moving into stage five, after being fully burnt out and not wanting to preach every single week, I was like, man, God, thank you so much for Dave. Thank you that I get to rest in between my sermons. And thank you for someone that I can just kind of learn from. I've learned so much from his preaching. And... You know, people started comparing us when, when he jumped on staff. And I said, Dave is a better preacher than me. Because I just didn't want to be compared. I'm like, I just wanted to forfeit and end the conversation. <laughs> and I really believed that. And I think, like, that was me peeking into stage five. Just feeling like, you know, I'm going to preach out of who I am. I'm going to preach my strengths. I'm going to preach my addictions. I'm going to preach my insight into the word. And I started, instead of comparing me and Dave in my own heart, even though I love learning from him, God just said, hey, can you compare Moses and Joseph and, and David? Like, are they comparable people? I had my own relationship with each one. I had my own story for each one. I have my, I've gifted them in different ways. And stage five, you come to a place where you're not, just, you're not trying to be better than anyone. It's just you and the Lord. It's standing before him in the, at the end of your life. And it doesn't matter who you outran, who you lapped, who you're better than. It's just like God gave you these gifts. God gave you this story. God gave you this personality. And did you use what you had for him? Did you use it for him? And it's just you and him. And, you're, and he's rewarding you for how you've been faithful to your gifts, your story, and who you are. That's stage five, sitting down with the Lord and saying, God, help me to steward my life for you. Whether it's the most remedial task or whether it's on stage, it makes no difference because I'm sitting with Jesus face to face and I love him and I'm hearing his voice and that's all that matters. I hope that you became Christian because you love sitting with Jesus. I hope that you became Christian because you just loved being with Jesus. And that that's all your life is wrapped around. And that that's all your life is for and, and out of. You love being with Jesus, so you're reading his word because you want to know and fall in love with him more. 
You love being with Jesus, so you're serving him. And every moment you serve, it's because you're connecting Jesus into what you're doing. You love being with Jesus, so you're sitting with them and saying, God, would you just speak to me? Because this is the best part of my day. I want to invite you into sitting with Jesus. And we have these simple invitations on the next slide. Um, you're invited to sit with Jesus every day with us as a community. We do devotionals. Right now we're finishing up Revelations. I'm fully in love with that book. I've never gotten more out of Revelations than this reading. Everyone else is pretty quiet over Revelations, maybe scared. But every day I'm like putting things down. And then next, uh, next Monday we'll start Romans as a palate cleanser. And then um, on a weekly basis, we want to invite you to Sabbath. We want you to invite you to take a full day to slow down, put down your phone, put down your emails, put down um, the anxieties, and just sit with the Lord. And I hope that you came today not because of you were used to coming to church on Sundays, but because you want to sit at Jesus' feet and hear his voice and fall in love with him. We want to invite you to weekly small groups. We have robust small groups. Some of them cook uh, grill, you know, and feed you when your wife is gone. We'd love for you to join that. And then we want to have these extended times with the Lord in really developing silence and solitude. So Good Friday will be that space, three hours of being with the Lord. It's primarily one-on-one -on -one or in family units to hear his voice, to slow down, to allow your prayers to elongate. You're not rushing through to allow the silence to take over. And, and that's going to be our Good Friday from 6 to 9. Again, you can come and go as you please, but it's just one prayer station after another. Our all-church retreat, we don't have a main speaker. It's, again, these moments of silence and solitude with the Lord and debriefing, hoping that you'll fall in love with Jesus and that sitting with him will be the most important thing. You know, I, I think about... Um, I think about my ex-girlfriend <laughs> and how amazing she was. She got a PhD in neuropsychology and MA in theology. She serves. She's a great cook. She was a musician, wrote her own songs, and played at different uh, coffee shops. Uh, she took the LSATs for fun and got like a 182 or whatever. She's really smart. But why we didn't get married was because of couch time. When you sit next to someone, it really doesn't matter how smart they are, their accomplishments, how rich they are. It's just you and them. And whether your soul loves being next to their soul. At hour five, six, and seven, any exterior achievements just don't matter anymore. Do you love being next to them? And for her, even though she's a great person, I was like, at hour four or five, I was like, I kind of want to go home. And hour six or seven, I was like, I'm kind of done. And, and we're like really far into our dating relationship. I was like, dang, with marriage, I hear it's 24 hours. <laughs> like every day, forever. It's a really long time. And I just thought like, would I ever find someone that I want to be with forever? You know, I had a lot of friends and I loved hanging out with them, but I don't want to move them in for 30 years. And then I found Nina. And I remember spending a full day with her and dropping her off. She lived a block away. I dropped her off like 11 o'clock, and we we're going to have breakfast together at 8 a.m. That means I'm going home, brushing my teeth, going to sleep, waking up, and picking her up for breakfast. And I was so sad. I was like, I'll have 10 minutes of consciousness where we're not together. <laughs> I know, I know. 
you're vomiting rainbows. Um, and I was like, I need to marry this girl. And then um, that was our fourth date. So, <laughs> so we got married and had three kids. Um, this fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth stage is defining your whole spiritual life by couch time with Jesus. Everything starts and ends there. I love being with Jesus. That's it. That's the whole thing. And whether I'm sitting with him quietly, whether I'm serving him, whether I'm eating or drinking or playing with my kids or feeling alone, I'm doing it with the Lord. He's deeply connected to me. That sitting with Jesus in that cultivated space is how, is how you hold his hand and pull him into your living room and kitchen, into the car, into your workspace. Sitting with Jesus and cultivating that space is the only constant in your life. When your kids move away, when your boyfriend gives up, when your knee buckles and you're sitting on a stool to preach because you only have a certain amount of time before shooting pain ripples through your body, sitting with Jesus is that one constant from here to eternity. That's the one thing. Jesus is do Mary is doing the one thing in that moment and the one thing that matters for the rest of her life and the one thing that she'll do when she meets him again. God, I just thank you so much that your greatest gift to us is you. It's not the job, it's not job security, it's not a church community, it's not living with purpose. Your greatest gift to us is you. That's why you died on the cross. That's why you shed your blood so that you can hold us, so that you can draw near this holy God that, that um, shakes mountains, cracks the earth, whips wind through, is able to whisper because of the cross, is able to sit with us without destroying us because of the cross. We get to be enveloped by your person and love because you forgive us and you brought us into being your son or being your daughter. And I pray that that would be what defines our faith. Loving you, sitting with you, seeing your gaze and hearing your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-hosts together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources 
enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.